Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Marty Murphy. I'm the president of the BBA, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to what will be the first in a series of programs over the course of our year addressing issues relating to systemic racism. And we hope giving BBA members an opportunity to take concrete steps to move the needle toward racial justice. Uh, we chose to start with a program on voter protection because we're now 40 days away from what I think everyone, regardless of their party affiliation or point of view politically, believes is an extraordinarily important election. And one where the fight to make sure that everyone uh, can exercise their right to vote is going to be fought as hard as it's ever been fought. The goal here today is to give you a framework to understand the importance of election administration and voter protection, to let you hear from folks who've done voter protection work in the past, and to give you a concrete uh, as sense of possible of what you, you'd be doing if you did sign up to volunteer, which we hope you will. Um, so I have the opportunity now to introduce the panelists. Um, we're lucky to have a great panel today. I'm gonna to do that briefly. Um, Rachel Cobb, um, who will be our lead off speaker, is the Chair of Political Science and Legal Studies at Suffolk University. She has a PhD from MIT, an undergraduate degree from Bryn Mawr. She's a member of the City of Boston Election Advisory Committee and is an expert on elections generally and the voting process and poll workers in particular. Uh, you may want to check out her 2012 article called Can Voter ID Laws Be Administered in a Race-Neutral Manner? Evidence from the City of Boston, which is available online. Um, and I would warn people in advance that since uh, Professor Cobb is a political scientist, there's math in there. I don't think we're going to be hearing too much math from her today. Um, Kate Cook will be up next. She's a partner at Sugarman Rogers in Boston, where she leads the government law practice group. Um, she's a former general counsel, the former chief legal counsel to Governor Deval Patrick, and the former general counsel to the Massachusetts Senate Ways and Means Committee. In addition, and particularly relevant to her presence here today, she's been very much involved in the past um, in a as a volunteer in voter protection efforts, and we'll be talking to you about her experience. Kate is uh, also a member of the BBA Council, among many other outside activities that she does. Sophia Hall is a supervising attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights, where she has worked uh, since 2016 at the forefront of legal work protecting the rights of people of color. Uh, she's a graduate of Emory University and Boston College Law School. Uh, and she's a member of the Boston uh, Bar Association's Task Force on Ensuring Police Accountability, which we now have underway and which we hope will be releasing a report either later this year or early next year. Uh, Gretchen Bennett is coming to us today from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, she's there, uh, among other things, as you'll hear, as a senior advisor to the Voter Protection Project. She's the former chief counsel to the Massachusetts Judiciary Committee former executive director of the New England Innocence Project. She has an undergraduate degree from Harvard and a law degree from BU. Um, and before moving to Ohio for this election, she's a Massachusetts native, or at least a Massachusetts ordinary resident. And she's worked on election protection uh, programs in Florida in 2018, in Michigan in 2016, and in Pennsylvania in 2004, 2008, and 2012. So we're happy to have that Gretchen wins the longest uh, travel by Zoom award to get here today. And finally, um, Matt Allen is the field director, last but not least, of the ACLU of Massachusetts, where he's worked 
for the past six years and has helped organize the ACLU's uh, voter protection volunteers for this, for this campaign. Um, prior to joining the ACLU, he was uh, the executive director of the Massachusetts Patients Advocacy Alliance and has worked as a community organizer on a range of issues from economic justice to homeless prevention. He has a master's of science degree in urban and regional policy from Northeastern. So thank you very much um, for uh, all the panelists for agreeing to, to join us uh, today. And thanks all of you for uh, linking in today. We're very happy to have as many of you as we do. Um, after the program, I should say in advance that uh, we'll be sending you contact information for the panelists and links where you can sign up to volunteer and to receive training on helping in the election. The goal really here is to provide you with a sense of what you could concretely do to help if you wanted to do. Um, you know, BBA is a nonpartisan organization and we'll be talking today about nonpartisan uh, opp opportunities. I know that uh, some of the panelists have done partisan work as well and I'm confident that if that was more to what you'd be interested in, they'd be prepared to provide contact information if you contact them afterwards on online. I would just say as a final note that you know, so many of us have felt uh, enormous sadness over the past two weeks, first with the death of Chief Justice Gantz and then last Friday with the uh, death of Justice Ginsburg. Um, and I think one great way that we could all celebrate the legacy of Justice Ginsburg and Justice Gantz is to uh, become involved in efforts like this to make sure that uh, everyone to the largest extent possible, uh, has an opportunity to have their voice heard on election day. Justice Ginsburg's dissent in the Shelby County case in 2013 was really prophetic in many ways about what's happened in the country since. Um, she said that dismantling, as the Supreme Court did in that case, the most central provision of the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965 was the equivalent of um, throwing your umbrella away in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And uh, you know, I think many of us have seen what's happened since then. Um, and we have an opportunity here to try to do something to uh, get that umbrella back over people's heads uh, by making sure that their votes get counted on election day. So thank you very much. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Professor, uh, Professor Cobb, thanks. Thank you, and that's a good way to launch us today. Um, I'm going to share a brief uh, set of slides um, with all of you to um, just want to make sure. Is that? There we go. Uh, I'm just going to provide a brief overview of some of the things that were uh, some of the things to know in terms of the background for the volunteer opportunities that await all of us uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and just to provide a little bit of theoretical background, not really theoretical, but important stuff to know about how people feel about the electoral process. So the survey of, um, sorry, I just need to make sure I'm getting my clicks here. The survey, of the performance of American elections uh, is a public opinion survey dedicated to understanding how Americans um, view their experience in elections and provides a kind of comprehensive data set at the state and national level documenting 
election issues as they are experienced by voters. And so there are four general areas that I want to focus on today, mostly dealing with how people feel their, how confidence connects to who they are and their identity. So broadly speaking, confidence is uh, highly correlated with party. Uh, so if you are a member of a political party and your candidate wins, you are likely to be far more confident that the results are what um, you think they were uh, than if the opposing party wins. And confidence is also tied to the actual voting experience itself. So we found that when people have a very good voting experience, and it's particularly in that relationship that they have with poll workers, um, their evaluation of their overall voting experience is much higher, and therefore their confidence that their vote will be counted the way they intended it to be is higher. Relatedly, and this is going to be a big issue this year, the time it takes to wait in line is also correlated with confidence. So if people are waiting in a long a very long time, they are less likely to feel confident that their vote will be counted in the way that they had intended. And then finally, number four, and this is also highly related to what happens this year, voting absentee, in the past at least on surveys, we found that voters have less confidence if they vote, the, kind, the manner in which they vote correlates. So if they vote absentee, they are likely to be less confident. So the, the overall sense that we have is that if you, here's a slide about voting method and confidence. If you voted on election day itself, you were more confident than if you voted by mail or absentee. And I should say that the numbers of people who voted by mail have gone up considerably in 2016 because more states have adopted this particular policy. But when we break it down by race, we find that African-Americans were about 50% confident that their vote was properly counted in the 2016 election. And that is a far cry from how they felt in 2012 when 76% believed that their vote was counted as intended. If we look at non-whites and Hispanics, 64% were very confident and whites were 70% confident and that number actually increased in 2016 up from 61% in 2012. We can certainly hypothesize on why this was the case. Was the high vote of confidence by African-Americans in 2012 due in large part to President Obama's bid and victorious reelection or something else? Or was the decline in support actually attributable to the Supreme Court ruling in 2016 in Shelby County versus Holder? I think the key and obvious points from the results are that differences do exist across race and ethnicity. And given the even further polarized views of Americans today, even compared to 2016, we can expect that these results will be interesting to watch. Um, finally, uh, when we look at just a, the kind of overall picture at 2016, we see that the the stark differences in race and in partisanship. One of the interesting things that ha has happened is that Democratic voters were less confident, confident in 2004, 2006, and 2014 um, than were Republican voters. So there is a, a clear relationship between who's winning and partisanship. 
This year, as we look ahead to, um, to the method of voting and confidence, big majorities of Democrats are favoring voting by mail and feeling confident in that method, and big majorities of Republicans are opposing vote by mail. So now I just want to walk through um, the process that it takes to vote and the steps required by way of then being able to analyze some of the snags that can happen at every step along the way. So we all know the first step, um, at least in many places, is that you have to register to vote. And then you have to, after you've registered, you have to uh, find your polling location. And after you have found it, at least on paper, you have to transport yourself to that location. And then when you arrive at that location, you have to authenticate yourself on the ballot, authenticate yourself, and then finally mark the ballot. And then finally, finally deposit the ballot into the whatever machine there is for tabulation. So what can go wrong? Well, at the time of registration, you might miss the deadline. You might move and not realize that you have to re-register. There may be duplicates in the state system or there might be file errors in the system that you are unaware of. And so we are, we are approaching key deadlines in states across the country. And so this is, there's just a, a, a narrowing window at the moment for registration for many people. And many people are also finding themselves in a location that they did not expect to be in and have some amount of confusion over exactly where they should be registering. When you have to find your polling location, the question is where do you find this information? How do you know where to go to find it? It can be quite confusing. And it can be further confusing this year, given that there has been a dramatic shift in what locations are going to be closed or open or staffing issues where early voting is going to happen. You know, for example, in Boston this year, we're going to have early voting at Fenway Park. That's never happened before. So, um, and so those are, those are new things, and, but those are confusing things, even if it's exciting to go vote at Fenway Park. Um, then you have to get yourself to the polling location. And it may be that you can't find it, you can't get there. There may be public transportation issues, there may be car issues, whatever there are. There may be long lines when you arrive there that are in fact so long, and in fact may look even longer than they are because of social distancing, and that may turn you away. Um, or you may have a disability and have difficulty in whatever the lead up to the polling location is, pending that the polling location is indeed accessible. When it comes to authenticating your ballot, it may be that uh, you lack the correct documentation. And so um, the question is, where do you find that information? And then at the time of actually marking the ballot, it may be that you have a disability and you have difficulty either seeing the ballot or marking it. And it may be that the machines that are available to you are not working, there are issues with that. It may be that you require language assistance and there may be issues with whether there are enough poll workers on hand to, or, or translators who are able to convey the information to you in the language that you speak. And then finally, at the moment of depositing in into the ballot tabulation device, it may be that there is a machine error, that it's a poorly cal calibrated tabulator, 
or it may be that there's voter error. Now, the good news about in-person voting is that if you were the one who made the mistake, the machines are generally designed to, to throw that ballot back to you so that you uh, can, if you undervoted or overvoted so that you can revise your ballot, you have a spoiled ballot and you can change things. So I'm just gonna wrap up and then send it over to, uh, to Kate. Um, the challenges in 2020 are that um, for, when it comes to voter registration, for example, there are likely to be far fewer in-person voter registration drives. And so just even that visual reminder that you might get if you're um, going shopping or something like that are not happening. So getting that information out to people in some way, shape or form is, 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 is heightened as a challenge. Um, changes in polling locations, as I already noted. And then finally, um, there is, we already know that there is a poll worker shortage in some places. The good news is a lot of people have stepped up. And so there are some places that are saying, I'm just overwhelmed with the number of people who are uh, saying that they want to be poll workers. So that's great. Um, the, the other thing that election administrators have told me is that they really do want to have a number of people on hand that day, even if they're not, um, even if they have not um, been assigned yet, because it, they have found that people are, may have symptoms the day before or the day of election and are so not showing up. So we need that kind of pool of people at the ready. Um, and then the other major challenge is training poll workers in this virtual environment. And I think one of the other biggest issues this year that we are facing is the general confusion um, that people have over all of these changes and all of these changes that have come so swiftly. So I will now turn it over to Kate. Thank you, Rachel. So now that Rachel's laid the, the groundwork for the the challenges and opportunities for the 2020 election, I've been asked uh, to provide the fun description about what it's like to actually be a volunteer uh, or a poll observer on election day. Uh, and at the risk of sounding corny, it's an amazing experience to see democracy in action. You will ask, and I see Gretchen nodding, um, anyone who's done it, and there's a reason why attorneys that volunteer come back again and again and again, it's extremely satisfying to make sure that every eligible voter gets to vote. Um, you are, let's be clear, you are not you know, at a desk writing a Supreme Court brief on the law of democracy. You are on the ground in real time solving problems, which I think actually is what a lot of lawyers hope that they'll do in their practice, right? As solve problems, but you actually get to do it in real time and watch it work. And it's, it's very gratifying. Um, so, um, so depending on where you are, what state, each jurisdiction has different election laws, but there are definitely some common themes. Uh, generally, you are assigned to a particular polling location. Uh, you are expected to show up before the polls open and stay until the polls close. This is generally, I'm sure there's exceptions, but in my experience, it's a long day. Uh, and, and the more time you can give, the better. So, you know, the, the goal is that you pack your lunch, you bring water, you wear comfortable shoes, and you are there for the day. Uh, you introduce yourself to the election workers, you let them know what organization or campaign you're with. 
process and uh, they explain to you where, where you're going to stand or sit and you know it, it's expected and it's, it's legal uh, to be there and, and they'll know that you're there and what you're there for and they'll actually appreciate the help. Uh, the goal is obviously to be professional and courteous uh, and not and, and listen to, to their um, desires for where, where you are. Um, and so uh, once you once you get there, whatever organization you're with, you'll have had excellent training. You'll know what problems to look for, and you'll know how you are expected to try to solve them in real time if you can. And in my experience, there's an expectation that if um, once once the problem's resolved or or not, uh, that you report it usually in a database. And this is. Um, usually overseen by a boiler room. Uh, I think this year there might be a lot of virtual boiler rooms, but the idea is there are volunteers who are looking, you know, usually at statewide, maybe nationwide, at the patterns and trends and synthesizing the information when there's issues and when necessary, elevating them to the Secretary of State or Attorney General. Uh, but they're relying on you, the eyes and ears at the polls, to actually tell them what the issues are. So I can't underestimate how important it is um, to, to have poll observers uh, this year. And um, what kinds of problems might you might you be problem solving? Well, I think a lot of them were listed on Rachel's slide seven, <laughs> which said when things go awry. You know, some of the frequent flyers are um, equipment malfunctions, a ballot getting jammed. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, an election worker who's confused about the legal requirements. Um, maybe uh, there's an obstruction in front of the polling location that needs to be removed. Uh, maybe you show up, you're assigned to a particular, particular polling location, and you're there on time, but the, but, but the election workers aren't. This happens. Uh, and sometimes the polls, either they, they open late or they close early. Uh, just uh, in 2016, I was in the New Hampshire. I was actually volunteering in the boiler room for the Kerry campaign. Excuse me. No, that's my wrong year. For the Clinton campaign. And we got a call from our poll observer in Dover um, who said even though Dover had posted that they would be open until 8 p.m., they were planning on closing at 7. So quickly there in the boiler room, the lawyer volunteers drafted a complaint, went to court, and the court agreed Dover was going to stay open until 8 p.m. because the voters in, in town had relied and planned their election day on being able to vote after they got off work from between that 7 to 8 p.m. time, which is critical. Um, so those are some of the real changes you can make. And the, the, the Kerry campaign story is in 2004, I think I saw Andrea Kramers in the audience today. She and I were assigned somewhere near the UNH campus, and we had been prepared for the fact there would be a lot of college student voters um, who were legally eligible, and that either the election workers might be confused about what was required for um, them to vote, and or there could be challengers. Um, just right on cue, that happened within the first hour or so, but we were able to make sure that all the eligible college students were able to vote. Um, and it was it was excellent um, work to actually see in real time uh, that, that folks were able to exercise the right to vote. Now, if you're thinking, I don't know, that sounds like a really long day and I'm only helping a handful of people, I have to tell you, um, nothing could be farther from the truth. And there's there's several reasons. First and foremost, every vote counts. If you don't believe me, ask Julia Mejia, who uh, <laughs> you know just got elected by by 
one vote uh, to the Boston City Council. Um, secondly, every interaction that you have as a poll observer with the election workers um, to try to remedy and solve problems is a teachable moment and has ripple effects. So in that example I just gave in 2004 with the college students, you know, the first, first hour or so, the election workers had to get comfortable with notwithstanding challengers from the other campaign, these college students were legal and lawful and they were going to be able to vote and, and to keep going. And that meant for the 200 or 1,000 college students that came for the rest of the day, they were able to vote without incident. And, you know, one of the things Rachel mentioned was um, long lines. And any training I've done about poll <laughs> observation is your, one of your main goals is to problem solve so that there are not lines. And, uh, you know, we can, we can all picture that visual uh, in Wisconsin um, during the, the pandemic when folks are spread out, the lines can look even longer. And I always like to think of the hypothetical person who's, you know, coming by on their lunch hour, they only have a, a, you know, a window of time, they come by, there's a huge line, and they think there's no way I have time to wait in this line, vote and get back to work on time. And so they just end up not voting that day. That's, that's the problem that you're trying to solve for. So anything you can do to remove obstructions and make sure there's not lines, uh, you are you are truly making a difference. Um, and um, I think that the final reason that I would I would advocate that this is really meaningful is you know elections have consequences and for me personally it's been extremely uh, satisfying on election day to know that I was I was there I helped I helped ensure that people got to exercise their precious right to vote it's fundamental to our democracy it's how we you know express our voice and choice for the future. Uh, that we want. Um, and so I hope you'll consider uh, joining an organization or a campaign, and you're going to hear more from Sophia and Gretchen and Matt about some of those opportunities. Um, and um, I did have three final points. One is, if you are volunteering on election day, that means you have to make your own voting plan right now, because you're not going to be able to go to your normal place unless you happen to get assigned to your own uh, polling location, but I think that rarely happens, especially if you're planning on going out of state. So make your plan today. Um, there's lots of new options now that make it much easier. Second, you need to encourage all your family and friends to vote. As Marty perfectly said, this is such a critical election, no matter who you vote for. We want maximum participation this year. Um, and I heard uh, Chief Justice Marshall last week in a voter protection arena say, do not tolerate any friends who do not vote. And she said I could quote her on that. So I'm, I'm sharing that. And I think we should all take that to heart. And finally, <laughs> I wanted to put in a plug. If you care about voter suppression and disenfranchisement, I hope you will watch a video of a BBA program that Rasan Hall and I put together last October 2019. Uh, about a really important movement happening right here in Massachusetts to restore voting rights for incarcerated people. The link is going to be included at the end of this program, and it's a very powerful uh, uh, discussion that we had featuring Rasan, uh, Elizabeth Mattis, Rachel Corey, Sean Ellis, and Cinder Hines. So I hope you'll give it a listen. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. So I'll kick it over to Sophia. Thank you very much, Kate. Sophia, and thank you. Thanks, Professor Cobb, as well. I didn't, you, you went directly to Kate, so I didn't get the chance to thank you. So you could kick us off here, Sophia. That'd be great. Absolutely. Thanks, Marty, for that. And 
you know, I always really enjoy anytime I get to be on the same panel as my friend Kate, because what I think she's already set up perfectly for me is just the level of enthusiasm and positivity that you can experience if you choose to volunteer for on election day in this really important work. And honestly, Kate, we should figure out how to bottle that and just sell it to our volunteers. We would like make a millionaire. Um, but so let me tell you about one very specific opportunity that you can participate in on election day. At Lawyers for Civil Rights, uh, we spearhead along with some community partners, both MassVote, the ACLU that you'll hear from, Common Cause and many others, Massachusetts election protection. Election protection nationally is the nation's largest nonpartisan voter protection program. There are programs on the ground. Uh, the last cycle, there were 26 programs throughout the country in 26 states. We're looking to expand that this year. Here, I'm gonna talk about just what we're doing in Massachusetts. And just so that people understand in terms of the kind of the integrity of the program itself, you know, this was spearheaded by the Lawyers Committee, the National Office in Washington, D.C. It was created after the Gore-Bush debacle, and it's directly supposed to address kind of the information gaps that normal people have that, just like Kate described, stop them in their tracks from voting on Election Day. We want to be able to be there in real time to alleviate those problems. And just like Kate mentioned, not only are you helping one person, but there really are ripple effects from the effort that you can engage in on Election Day. So let me tell you a few things that are different than what Kate shared, and maybe we'll encourage you to join us in this fight. Uh, one, I will not force you to work all day long. I will work all day long <laughs> from 30 minutes before the polls open till 30 minutes after they close, but our volunteers are only required to work a limited three and a half hour shift. You wanna work more than one shift, I'll certainly take you, but the limited requirement is three and a half hours to give on election day. In addition to that, the only other time requirement for you will be to attend a training that you can do sort of live virtually or that you can attend a recorded version. And that's approximately an hour and a half. What you'll learn after this program is that the BVA will be hosting an election protection training on October 23rd and we'd welcome you joining us there. So what does election protection look like now during this pandemic? One thing I want to put volunteers at ease about is that you can still give back, you can still engage and still feel safe. All of our opportunities this year will be virtual or socially distanced. You can engage in three parts of our program for your three and a half hour period time to be able to help voters. We will be again running our statewide, um, excuse me, our statewide hotline meaning you will be a hotline uh, phone receiver. You'll get people who are calling our 1-866-OUR-VOTE number. All of the Massachusetts calls will come through our calling center. Those will all be cloud-based, meaning you'll be in your living room taking calls from your computer, being able to help voters in real time to address the issues that they need. You'll be working with a team of volunteers. You'll all be together on a Zoom chat room so that you can troubleshoot problems together. You'll also have the support of a captain for when you don't know the answers, but I feel confident that you will know how to troubleshoot these issues. And in the event that this is something very unique that requires legal intervention, then we will have a command center, again virtually, but that you'll be able to access to be able to address these issues in real time. If not the hotline, then you can engage in our socially distanced field program. We are going to be on the ground in about 15 cities in Massachusetts. I'll tell you that we have selected cities that are predominantly places with high populations of people of color, high populations of low-income individuals, uh, populations where English is not a first language, 
and high populations of college students. We're targeting those polling areas because we want to make sure that we're addressing the concerns of our most vulnerable. I think despite many of our experiences here at the BBA, uh, unfortunately voting is still not intuitive. You know, we are still working as a commonwealth to modernize our election laws. I constantly, when I give testimony at the State House, say that I believe that voting should be as easy as breathing. You know, it is the basis from which all of our other rights extend. It should be the easiest process that we can have. We're getting there in Massachusetts. You know, we now have automatic voter registration so that people can opt out instead of opt in. So the onus is not on them. We hopefully very soon will have election day registration so that people don't have this onerous desire to have to register in advance despite all of the busy obligations they have in their lives. And we have some more work to do, but we at least now have vote by mail, which is great. So on the ground in one of the 15 cities where we will have people, you will be able in your car to observe external features at a polling site that are gonna give us critical information that we need to help voters vote. So what do I mean by that? We need to make sure that our polling centers are accessible. We need to make sure that signage is proper, people know where to go. We need to make sure that there are ramps for people who have physical disabilities. We need to make sure there are not long lines, that the polling centers are open when they should be. We need to ensure that whatever somebody needs to get into the physical building, that is working. And I can tell you that actually because of volunteers we've had on the ground, particularly in Boston, where as you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of tension, a lot of tight spaces. We have had issues with people being able to park, handicapped parking outside of polling locations. Things that we've been able to troubleshoot with the Secretary of the Commonwealth in real time and get addressed on election day so that our voters can vote. That's the difference that you make on that day just by picking up the phone and calling and saying, hey, Sophia, I'm at such and such location and there is no handicapped parking for at least 10 blocks. I don't know how voters are going to get in. That's the incredibly important job that you'll do. You'll be able to go ahead and flag for us if you're comfortable engaging with voters outside of the polling location while wearing a mask. Things such as, were you able to vote? Were there translators available for you to be able to understand the process? Is there an issue there with e-poll books or with the physical printed registration book? Were you on the list? Whatever sort of troubleshooting issues that an individual might experience that may be reflective of larger trends, to the extent that you're comfortable engaging with voters, you'll be able to capture that information for us on the ground as well. Finally, we're gonna also have something very new this year. We're gonna have a team of people who are doing social media and local news monitoring. And I think the question becomes why? Well, as many of you might know, the way that I gathered information about what was happening in Wisconsin was from local news. It was also from social media use. A lot of people who don't know about 1-866-OUR-VOTE might not call the hotline, but they might post on their social media a picture of an extremely long line at their polling site and say, hey, we heard that the machine was broken and that's why this line is so long. By us having monitors on social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, local news, we'll be able to capture that information and address those issues in real time as well. So it's just another opportunity to access people who need help and to get them help on election day. Again, remember that all of these opportunities you will be trained to troubleshoot. It's a really exciting program. In the past, I have committed to having at least 500 volunteers um, participating on election day. And the one thing I want to tell you is that this year I'd love to shoot that number out of the water. 
people want to know why. You know, we have vote by mail. More than 50% of the people in the Commonwealth, in fact, used vote by mail. And so I think there's a question of how, you know, how much good will I actually be on election day if half of the population has already voted? Well, here are two things to know. One, social studies research tells us that populations of color, communities of color, are more likely to vote in person than their, their white counterparts. So that what we mean is that the communities that are most vulnerable, that have historically been disenfranchised, those are likely going to be the people who are trying to vote on election day that you're going to be helping. So it's incredibly important that we do that. In terms of volume, we already ran our hotline for the primary. And this is what I can tell you about the difference between this cycle versus past cycles. In past cycles, we've not had early voting, but on primary day, I usually get about a half a dozen hotline calls through the hotline system. This year, I had a thousand percent increase of people contacting the hotline, and not just on election day, but throughout the early voting period. What that tells me is this, people are confused, people are gonna need our help and assistance, and we are gonna see a lot of traffic through our hotline and on the ground. There is going to be a lot of work to do despite vote by mail, and we can't do it if we don't have you. So I highly encourage you guys to sign up. As Kate mentioned, it can be a really thrilling way to do this work. You don't have to be a lawyer, but understanding the law helps. I'd only also highly encourage you to think about bringing your mentees or bringing your kids. You know, 16 and 17 year olds can now enroll to vote, but they can't actually vote yet. So there's something really phenomenal about them seeing this experience in real life, in practice, and helping other people vote. It's a way to be able to transform young people's minds about the importance of voting in a very positive way. Um, and so I would love to have everybody volunteer with us and I'm happy to answer any questions. Feel free to email me, but I hope that you will all sign up and the BBA will send out a registration link to do so. Great. Thank you, Sophia. We've had a couple questions in the, in the question function. I know you have to leave early. So let me just ask one of you right away. And that's is, if you want to volunteer to do what you've just described, do you have to be a registered voter in Massachusetts? No, you absolutely do not need to be a registered voter yourself. Like Kate mentioned, if you are, it's important to think about voting in advance so that you don't volunteer to help others and then forget to vote yourself. But there's no requirement that you have to be a registered voter. And because these are virtual opportunities, I don't necessarily even need you to be in the Commonwealth. If you're lucky enough to be laying on a beach somewhere enjoying your work from home, you can still participate by giving your three and a half hours on the hotline through the cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. Thanks, Sophia. There's a couple of other questions. One of them I think will be answered shortly. Are we going to provide resources about volunteer opportunities outside of Massachusetts? And so that's a good segue for me to turn this over to Gretchen Bennett, if I could who's speaking to us from Columbus, Ohio. There's one more question so far in the, in the question function, which we will get to at the end, I promise. Hi, thanks. Um, yes, so I am um, in Columbus, Ohio uh, for the election. I am a Massachusetts native and I am coming home um, at some point. We're glad. Through this election first. Um, so a number of us after uh, most of us, uh, a bunch of my friends and I had all uh, worked uh, in voter protection for the 2018 midterms. And in the spring of 2019, a lot of us started thinking about the problems that um, people 
face every cycle with voter protection. Um, people who do this more than one cycle, you, you usually not on the ground until maybe August. Um, then you find out that some law was passed, um, you know, months before that, that if you'd been there, you might've been able to do something about it. Um, there's always a lot of, I wasn't here in time. We didn't start this early enough. And so um, a bunch of us started thinking about 2020 and what are the issues that always come up? What are the things that states should be preparing for um, in a nonpartisan way uh, that impede people's ability to vote? Um, having just, I was in Florida in uh, 2018 and um, a bad ballot design, which was not intentional, it was just poorly done and people didn't catch it in time, uh, cost something like 20, almost 25,000 undervotes, meaning people just didn't see the race on their ballot and, and missed it, so didn't vote at all in that race. Um, that had a dramatic outcome. That was only in one county. So we started thinking, what are the things? Um, and uh, ultimately we created the Voter Protection Corps. The idea was that we would find the things ahead of time and try to give states a heads up. Um, it's gone through a lot of uh, morph morphing since last spring uh, or a year ago, uh, spring of 2019. Um, but it's really focused on expanding access to the ballot. And uh, currently what that means is for, for the Voter Protection Corps is poll workers. Um, it's been said both uh, Professor Cobb and also Sophia um, talked about lines, talked about the fact that uh, as it happens, vulnerable populations tend to be less comfortable voting by mail. Um, they want to vote in person. They want to have that experience of actually, you know, depositing their vote themselves. Um, long lines are a major, major source of voter suppression. Um, and so we started focusing on poll workers. Uh, we teamed up with Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University and uh, they helped us to develop a risk assessment tool. Uh, we focused on eight states initially and now are um, involved in recruiting poll workers across the country, um, but specifically focusing on Texas, North Carolina, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Um, and so if you have an interest, I'll, I'm gonna do more of a sale for this, but if you have an interest in poll working in a different place, a different state other than Massachusetts, you may or may not be able to do that depending on what the rules are in that state. The rules are different in every state. Um, I will say too that Massachusetts also has a need for poll workers in some, of, some locations still. Um, that's something that you can find out from the Secretary of State's office um, if you want to help close to home. And I would also say, you know, people think that it is not um, that Massachusetts is sort of a done deal in a presidential election. But I'll just say that A, down-ballot races matter too, and B, Kate was talking about what it feels like to help actually assist people in voting, to sort of help people participate in our democracy, and there 
it, it sounds corny, but there really is almost nothing like it. Um, when someone votes, someone gets to cast their vote and participate that might not have gotten to if you weren't there. Um, it, it's a real feeling. You really feel like you've done something. Um, usually when I'm recruiting people, I have a big, you know, one day for democracy uh, pitch that I give. Um, but it's true. You know, people say, oh, it's a long day. It is a long day, but it's one day. And it's something concrete that you can do for our democracy. Um, people don't vote if the polling locations aren't open and the polling locations don't open if there aren't people there to work at them. Um, especially in this COVID environment, I'm sure everyone has had a similar experience, I think, to the one that I have always had. Um, the place that I go to vote, um, there has been the same um, elderly woman there for the past 20 years where I vote in Boston. Um, I, I don't, she doesn't seem to get any older, um, but she wasn't young when this started. And so um, nationally, uh, uh, poll workers, they tend to be people who are retired. Um, more than 50% of them are over the age of 65. And so in this COVID environment, um, these, are definite, the, these are definitely people who have more cause to be concerned about uh, their COVID vulnerability. And so places all across the country are having a hard time recruiting poll workers or retaining poll workers. I think um, across the country we've seen in a lot of the primaries that happened during the COVID, um, dur since COVID became a pandemic and people started in America and people started really understanding what they were dealing with in America, um, we had situations where less than 50% of poll workers showed up on election day to open the polls. Um, those polls were unexpectedly closed. We saw what happened in Wisconsin. We saw what happened in Georgia, in Kentucky. Um, expanding access to the ballot um, really starts with a polling location being available. And so um, if you are interested, um, if you're interested in working in Massachusetts, you can go to the Secretary of State's website. Um, but if you're interested in possibly working in another state, we would love to help you find a state that where you can volunteer um, and where um, you are needed. Um, you can go to our website. They will, they're going to send out a link after this. Um, I would just really encourage you to do it. It's a great experience. Um, and thanks so much. I'll be happy to answer questions at the end too. Sorry guys. So that takes us to Matt. So Matt is gonna talk us, Matt again is a field director for the ACLU of Massachusetts and we're happy to have him here as well. And we'll, we will, we have, I think, one question we haven't answered yet, uh, but please, if you have more, we'll definitely have time for questions at, at, at the end. Thanks, Marty. And I definitely do want to leave time for questions, so I'll just make a few quick points. The ACLU is part of the Election Protection Coalition, so we work hand-in-hand -hand with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights on doing poll monitoring trainings and participating in the other activities that, that she mentioned. So when you get your follow-up email from the BBA, 
there will be links for you to sign up for pool monitoring training the HLU is offering or LCR, uh, but they're going to cover the same content. One point that I want to quickly make is that we do, we do have problems with voting here in Massachusetts and with people being disenfranchised. I think in my work as the field director of the ACLU, I'm often out talking to community members and whether we're talking about state legislation or issues like uh, voting, often folks think that, that everything is fine in Massachusetts and there's no work to be done here, so they want to go somewhere else. Um, but we do have problems here and we need your help. For instance, um, we've seen problems in the past in Springfield and Lowell that poll monitors were key in identifying uh, and that resulted in the Department, Department of Justice actually coming in to monitor elections there between 2009 and 2011. Some of the issues that came up were folks getting wrong information, uh, not being given provisional ballots uh, when there was uncertainty about if they're registered or not. That's a common issue. Uh, be, people being asked for ID. And uh, in Worcester, we've actually seen uh, just, just outright intimidation with people standing in front of polling centers and demanding ID only from folks who uh, seem to be immigrants. You know, so that's a big issue that, that, that uh, we're going to be looking out for uh, and could come up again again this year. So people you know, are disenfranchised due to some of the issues that Sophie and others mentioned, long lines, improper voting list purges, uh, but also those outright acts of intimidation and, and deception. Basically, the role of the poll monitors, monitors is to observe, assist, and record, as Sophia explained. Um, if you want to do this, we are going to be having some, uh, some trainings coming up with the ACLU. You can sign up for those, or if you, you can uh, sign up and get a, um, a recorded training. Uh, we have several trainings. Our first one is coming up this Saturday, but frankly, signing up for some of the later trainings in mid or late October uh, will probably be a little bit better because we're still kind of figuring out exactly how to uh, change the training to uh, in, in light of COVID and in light of the new uh, uh, voting rights law. But what will happen if you sign up, you'll attend the training about an hour, an hour and a half, as Sophia said, then we'll send follow-up information, including uh, links to recording so you can refresh yourself before you go out there. Uh, we'll also send you a survey where you can sign up uh, and tell us which locations are best for you and which shifts are best for you. So then after the training, we can get out to you, uh, the shift and location would be best that, 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 that uh, you're, you're located at. So with that, uh, we'll wrap it up and see what kind of questions we have. Thanks, so one question we've had is, um, you know, there's been a lot of concern expressed, not only about people being able to vote on election day, but about making sure that the people who do vote on election day have their votes counted. Can folks, in whatever order, I'll just take a raise of a hand um, uh, who would like to address that. Anyone want to speak to that, whether what, what they see as, as potential issues with that and also whether there are things that people can do to help? I, yeah, I can, um, I can say that. Um, Although it's different in different states, um, in every state, the major parties, at least, are allowed to uh, have observers from start to finish of this, um, of processing the ballots. Uh, and so, uh, I'm trying to be very careful. Um, and so, um, there are attorneys that watch 
every stage um, from the outer envelopes being opened through the machines, um, you know, through the actual tabulation and then um, even after the, the official canvas, right, which happens, you know, we get preliminary results and then um, there's the official canvas. And so um, I, I'm involved in, a, in addition to the work that I do with Voter Protection um, Corps, I also um, am involved with a party and, um, and help to put those, those safeguards in place. That's what voter protection um, does, and especially in an election like this, where there will be states um, where the counting could be going on for a long time. Um, happily, in Ohio, although Ohio has many of its own problems, um, in Ohio, the processing of the of mail-in ballots and um, early voting, which is actually in-person absentee voting in Ohio, for example, all of that can be processed before election day, although not tabulated. And so there are there are people getting ready. Voting will start here in Ohio in um, on October sixth, and there will be people monitoring. All of the all of the polling locations for early voting, um, you know, there will be people observing the envelopes being opened, the ballots being processed. Um, in Ohio, uh, fortunately, those are the first results that are released actually before the people who vote in person on election day. Um, but that's not the case in every state, and so there could well be people needed and a need for people to um, observe these processes for, who knows, weeks following the election. Um, and so that's how, you know, that that's what is in place to make sure that the votes are counted and properly counted. There are attorneys, um, often also from nonprofits, um, but definitely from both parties, both major parties, who watch every part of the process. So I think there's a couple questions. Two of them seem to be the same. I'm sorry, Matt. Do you have additional thoughts on that? Just one quick point. Uh, the ACLU is part of uh, the Election Modernization Coalition, as well with Lawyers for Committees to Civil Rights and other groups. And so we worked hard to pass legislation to allow widespread mail-in voting this year. Our biggest concern right now is that those mail ballots need to be postmarked no later than Election Day and received by the town hall by November 6th. So that's a potential problem right there, making sure that the mail gets to the town hall by the 6th. So we really encourage people to apply for your mail-in ballot as early, early as possible and mail it as early as possible because we may lose some votes uh, if those ballots don't, if there's any uh, slowdowns with the mail. And two of the questions actually related to mail-in ballots, they were essentially, uh, is, are there opportunities for volunteers to make sure that uh, there is, um, uh, counting of the mail-in ballots. So, I've seen Gretchen nodding. Yeah. And Kate I, was gonna, I feel, yeah, I, I mean, Matt and Sophie, Sophia has uh, had to leave, but Matt can speak to whether their program is doing that. But I, I, I do know from the campaign side, campaigns are definitely sending observers. We, just like Ohio here in Massachusetts, we also uh, have a transparent and public 
uh, process for what they call the processing of the mail-in ballots that are received. Uh, and I think there are volunteer opportunities, uh, both nonpartisan and partisan. And again, the email that you'll get afterwards will have a list of volunteer opportunities. Are the volunteer op opportunities that will appear there will be the nonpartisan opportunities, but I'm confident that to the extent that people are interested in partisan opportunities or opportunities beyond what we list, that the folks on the panel would be happy to respond by connecting them with other people. Our goal is to make sure that as many members get to participate in this process in whatever way they want to do. Um, so I, I think we'll be happy to, to connect people um, with uh, others they can talk to if that's their, if that's their objective. Um, one question was, I, I thought a very interesting question got asked about social media. And um, you know, there was some reference, I think Sophia mentioned it before. Um, have any of the panelists seen examples where uh, social media was used in essence to provide disinformation? Pictures of long lines that maybe didn't match up with the exact polling location in order to discourage people from coming out. So um, I'm happy to turn that over to the panel as a whole. I'll just jump in with sometimes even not intending to be to depress turnout, there can be pictures of long lines. And for example, we know that there are often long lines first thing in the morning. And so that can, the, if the media reports it as in, you know, record lines, and first of all, we, with social distancing, they're even longer, but it may be that those lines pretty much you know, sort of dwindle and an hour later they're done and it's okay to, you can go and, and, and have the process be fairly smooth. But I am extremely nervous about all of the disinformation, some of which is intentional and some of which is completely unintentional, but with all of the changes that are happening this year, people are genuinely confused. They're always confused. <laughs> you just add to everything that's going on this year. Uh, far more confusion. I mean, I was, um, you know, Boston, for example, is going to have early voting on the weekends. It's a different process this year than it has been in years past. And whenever you have a policy change, there's always a learning curve. So, um, so the, the need to uh, just emphasize facts and make sure that clear information is getting out every single day. I just don't think you can say anything that is factual enough. Great. Thanks, Rachel. Um, are there other thoughts on, on that point? I, I, the idea I was wondering about is whether if people go to the polls and don't encounter obstacles, there are no lines, should they put that on their social media as an effort to try to balance um, the information that's out there because I think people go to the biggest problems for news stories and the longer lines are going to be featured a lot more than the shorter lines are. I saw on the on the September 1st primary, I saw what I thought were some helpful tweets of people with their I voted sticker or early voting and saying it was safe. It wasn't scary. You know, they social distancing was in effect, lots of hand sanitizer. I think those things are obviously helpful because there is understandably anxiety for folks who are planning to vote in person. 
Can, and can I just add that um, something that I've been advocating a lot recently, just because I've been watching it um, be a problem, is people, uh, when you're, if you are tweeting or posting um, about voting um, and you are trying to be helpful, it is very helpful to say what place you are talking about because I'm seeing a lot of well-intentioned people getting into arguments online about whether there are drop boxes or there are not drop boxes or, you know, the times of voting, all kinds of things. And it's because they're in different states. It's because every state is different. And people make these very broad um, sweeping statements, you know, Democrats must do this, Republicans must do this, this is a huge problem. Um, and it's very, very frustrating because it's, I don't think it's being, a lot of it is not being done with bad intent. You know, it's just that people are not being clear that they are only speaking for the state in which they live and sometimes the county in which they live. So I would caution people about that. Um, just been on my mind. So while you're talking about social media, that I'd throw it out there. Great. Um, well, I think we've hit the hour. So thank you very much. I appreciate uh, all the panelists being here and Sophia. So thanks, Kate. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Gretchen. Thanks, Matt. Um, and thanks to the folks who tuned in. Um, I do hope that uh, as many people uh, as possible who are on this do take the opportunity to, to volunteer. We will be pushing out resources um, so that people will have an opportunity to, to choose among the options. Uh, and we will also be all happy personally to receive emails from folks to see if they have particular interest to see how we could connect them with that. Uh, I will say we're doing one other thing with this program, and that is we're trying to do some follow-up surveys, which to see whether folks actually participated, really for two reasons. Number one, to test whether or not uh, what we're doing here has impact, as we hope it will. And second, because we'd like if folks are interested to be able to feature what some BBA members are doing on um, election day. So if you're interested in that, uh, we'd be very happy to, to, to hear from you. We do have, as you'll see on the screen, some upcoming um, election webinars, including one uh, about uh, cybersecurity and a second one, which Sophia mentioned, uh, which is actually in, an in-person, an in-person, yeah, well, not exactly in-person, but a hands-on training um, session. So I wanna thank everybody for coming. Uh, thank the panelists, thanks, thanks everyone. And uh, I look forward to everyone doing as much as they can to make sure that everybody's vote uh, gets counted on election day. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone.